Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Joining us now, Tony Dwyer, Canaccord Genuity Equity Strategist. He joins us on a phone. Tony, great to hear from you, sir. Are you more preoccupied with what's going right or what could go wrong? So, John, back in 2009, I remember I was sitting at an industrial um, uh, industrial company conference, and they were going through multiple slides of what their contingency plans were. This was in the summer of 2009, so the market was up 50%, but you were still kind of in the grip of the great financial crisis. And people were looking at each other saying, how can the market be up so much? So at this conference, this company's talking about what could their contingency plans on what could go wrong if when it goes wrong, I raised my hand and I said, have you guys ever got a contingency plan of what could go right? And the what could go right is always revolved around credit. And I was reading a a Bloomberg story, and I'm going to look away from the camera for one second, just so I can read a little bit out of the story. Um, Alphabet Chevron Chevron priced a two-year bond yield yesterday with a 0.333% coupon. You had on the high yield side, aluminum packaging company Ball Corp sold 1.3 billion of 10 year notes at 2.875%. High yield, 2.875%. So you go into an economic and market kind of catastrophe or problem when you have a need for money with limited or no access to it. Clearly, that's not the case. Tony, you're saying follow the credit market, keep buying stocks. Yeah, that's, <laughs> I hate to listen, the guy's printing the money keep telling us their game plan. They're they're not even thinking about thinking about thinking about I mean you could go on and on about not thinking about raising rates. It's forward guidance so you, in twenty twenty, Tony. It's forward guidance to to twenty twenty four and and potentially for the rest of my career unless you get a major surge of inflation that's sustainable. Remember the ten year inflation break evens are still at about one point six percent. They want core inflation at an average of 2%. These guys are going to have their foot on the pedal until the for, for the foreseeable future. And as a result of that, the need for returns and pension plans is creating a demand equation, as Lisa pointed out, not just for treasuries and as the Bloomberg story pointed out, for, for investment grade and speculative credit. Tony, when does a real economy matter? Well, so this is an incredible time, Lisa, because what we have is this excess liquidity we've never seen before, coupled with at the same time, if you look at the OECD, which is the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development, they track 37 countries. As of their end of June data, and it works with a six-week lag, so it's really mid-May, at the end of June, they were saying that there were zero of the 37 economies that were showing positive or above average um, composite leading indicators. That pivoted to 90% month to month. So we have a, a, an economy that has largely been in collapse that is just beginning to pivot higher. Whenever that's happened in the past, you've had a sustained economic recovery. So it's really important that we don't need a sur- an incredible surge in economic activity because that would that would change the whole dynamic of credit. You want what we're getting, which, well, a little better than we're getting, especially for the small businesses and the people that need the money. You, you yeah. are beginning to get that inflection higher. Lisa, you've got to concede to some degree that the economic story is beneath the index with tech stocks absolutely ripping. I think the tech sector up about 24% year to date. The KBW Bank Index is still down around about 30%. That's not because the economy is doing well 
it's because That's it right. isn't. Yeah, there is discretion, certainly, that is beneath the surface of some of these indexes. Hard-pressed to find the discretion, though, in a junk bond yielding 2.875%. Sure. Hard to find the discretion in a record amount of issuance across the board, in more junk bond issuance so far year-to-date than all of last year. Tony, looking forward, there is a question here of how sustainable this is, especially in light of some pretty serious potholes. For example, there is no deal in Washington, and the time is ticking, and the pain is deepening. Can you imagine Washington is not going to come to a deal and they're going to let uh, the only purpose of the government is to support the people and they're going to let everybody fail. So our underlying assumption is they will get pain is the motivate motivator for change and growth. They will get in enough pain. The feedback loop will become negative enough that they will come to a deal. But again, we've got to separate what um, is good or bad, right or wrong. Those don't matter. Hey, I frankly, I don't think this incredible use of debt ultimately is going to be a good thing, but that doesn't matter. It is. So what I try to guide our institutional clients and, and wealth management clients overseas is try to get by what intuitively seems good or bad, right or wrong, and just focus on what is. We've had almost one or two trillion dollars of corporate credit new issuance, which allows those companies to bridge the gap until we get the, the continued pivot in economic activity. That historically, when you look back at periods of, of similar high volatility followed by a drop, uh, you know, a retracement of the volatility, when you see correlations as high as they were in March, those are periods where it's the beginning of a new economic and market cycle. And that's really the differentiator. Is it the beginning of the, a new and economic and market cycle? And the data that, that we have suggests that it is. Tony, something's got to break. And I'm just wondering what breaks first. Is it the market and the market rally over the last few months? Or is it the resolve down in Washington? Because right now, I'm with you. Of course, they've got to get something done. But at the moment, this economic data in America is fairly resilient relative to what people expected to see coming into August. And I'm just wondering what breaks the resolve down in Washington. I, again, John, like if you look at the TSA numbers, even with the increasing case of COVID-19 over the last month, the TSA numbers uh, are still going up. So what's happening is you've taken something that's gone from extraordinary and it's moving more towards normal. And at the same time, like I said, you're going to get this pressure in Washington to actually get something done. But again, with all of that in the game, you're having incredible money pushed into the system that bridges the gap. Now, of, of course, you're going to have to have a deal in Washington. You're going to have to have the economy recover. And that's where you have to, when you look at the historical data, when it is set up like it is, you do get those things to happen. I will say it's the Dow of Tony Dwyer. Just look at what is, and that is the wall of money. If you're looking at the wall of money, why not just invest in small cap stocks and call it a day? Say eventually the rally will get to some of the less loved sectors, and that's where you're going to actually get the biggest returns. And that's our, that's our call. So when, when John asked, you know, what breaks first, the market, let's define the market. Yeah. So here's what we have. We have the stay-at-home stocks, which are now defensive in nature, the mega cap fang stocks, which are now defensive in nature. So let's say the economy gets a lot better. They should correct as the as what's been happening over the last couple of weeks where the economically sensitive small cap emerging uh, markets 
do way better because you're starting to price in returned economic activity. While it's it's inter- this is very interesting. People keep thinking that this is like the bubble of of the dot com boom because only a few stocks are driving the index gains. But it's totally opposite when you look at the average stock. The NYSE composite uh, new new uh, NYSE advanced decline line, cumulative advanced decline line. I think made a new high this week, all time high. It was in a two year downtrend. By the time you hit the dot-com bubble peak. So yes, a few stocks are definitely driving the gains. And I I think it's far, it's excessive. There's no question. However, a lot of stocks, even the banks, if you look at from the low, they're highly, there's still a high correlation because they've been going up, just not as much. And that's where the opportunity exists is where you get some of the FANG stocks maybe to go sideways, consolidate their gains with economic activity improving, while these other areas, the economically sensitive or recovery areas really start to ramp. Tony, you are more than welcome to join us anytime you like to read us a Bloomberg story in the morning. I promise. Whenever you like, Tony, it's I'm great to see you. I'm pandering to I'm my just, audience. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. Tony, send my best to the family. Great to catch up. Tony Dwyer of Canaccord Genuity. Thank you very much. Joining us now is the wonderful Lisa Hornby, Schroeder Investments US Fixed Income Portfolio Manager. Lisa Hornby, fantastic to catch up with you. Policy has been the big issue this year in 2020. I could have told you every single data point and many people still would have got the market call wrong. What's the policy focus for you right now, Lisa? I mean, it's clearly an extension of, of these benefits. Um, you know, I, I think the points you both were making or you three were making right before I came on were, were right. Will the, will the central government get it together and um, continue these unemployment benefits? I mean, right now the economy is surviving on stimulus. You know, you think about um, some of the packages that are going to, that are going to be rolling off, um, potentially the unemployment benefits, the question as to whether or not state and local governments get relief. I mean, these are some of the big economic questions we're asking ourselves. State and local governments employ 18 million people, um, small businesses, right? They employ 60 million people. Surveys there are showing that optimism and hiring plans are well below where they were pre-pandemic. These are the kind of questions that we're asking. Are we going to see some kind of fiscal relief package that continues what we've seen before, that potentially even expands on it? From a fixed income investor's standpoint, do you bet on the Fed put just the idea that no matter what, there is going to be a pinning of Treasury yields roughly where they are, regardless of policy? Or do you really look to some sort of resurgence in inflation and some sort of economic data to sort of get your guidelines? Um, to an extent, there's a Fed put. So we, we first and foremost look at valuations when we're evaluating markets, when we're evaluating credit. Um, and valuations today tell us they're more or less median level. So things are not expensive, things are not cheap. But what keeps us engaged in the markets, despite them being just fair value, is the fact that we do have this tremendous liquidity environment. So the Fed keeps us perhaps more engaged in fixed income because we do think there is some degree of a backstop. But we will continue to become or we will become much more cautious if we start to see spreads really ratchet in here because there is still a tremendous dislocation between where markets are trading today and what the underlying economy tells us. And this is not something that we think will be gone in just a couple of months' time. There are going to be sustaining pressures on certain points of the economy for 
a long time to come. There's a question about the intelligence of buying treasuries as an investment right now, given the negative real yields. Where are you on that? I mean, do you see treasuries as truly acting as a hedge against equity volatility going forward? Um, you know, we're fairly neutral duration here in our portfolios. I think the Fed is the backstop. I, I find it really difficult to see rates moving aggressively, to be honest, in either direction um, at this point in time. I think we're kind of in a range. And, uh, you know, yes, I think that you want to have some treasuries in your portfolio if we do have another risk-off event. But equally, I think that we're going to see the government response very, very quickly, both on the Fed and the fiscal side, if we do have another major downturn in financial assets. I think they learned their lesson this time around. I mean, the the magnitude and the briskness of the response was just incredible. And that's what stabilized markets in a in an actually very short period of time. Lisa Hornby, this market has taken down a tremendous amount of supply on both the sovereign and the credit side. Are you seeing any signs of fatigue whatsoever? You know, from my perspective, it seems that investors just can't get enough. I mean, the U.S. is still the highest yielding developed market in the world bar Italy. Um, and so we are still seeing that international demand hedging costs have gone all the way down you know a couple of percentage points if you look back over the last 18 months so we are still seeing that international demand it seems insatiable and we are we're even seeing domestic um, sort of retail demand as well Uh, so right now it seems that people are just can't get enough of credit you look at the deals that have come um, in the market over the last few weeks, the concessions have been completely erased. I mean, in many cases, they're coming 20 basis points through where the initial price talk is. So the demand is still there. Um, you know, the Fed is still there as the backstop. People, I think, are looking through this congressional impasse at the moment and thinking something will get done. Um, and, you know, I think some of that risk premium is probably not – I think there should be a somewhat – greater degree of risk premium in markets, just given some of the uncertainty that's out there. But at the moment, you know, it's kind of, uh, it's a little bit, it's kind of calm. Lisa Hornby, just a final question from me. We face this really strange dynamic in credit right now. It feels like a momentum trade where lower yields beget lower yields and the strong get stronger, the weak get weaker. And when I say to people, what's the money being used for? When they issue this debt, they'll say it's to lock in low rates. And that's a good thing because average borrowing costs are lower. And therefore, I want to buy the credit. But Lisa, that just tells me you want to buy the credit because average borrowing costs are lower. So you buy the credit, then they issue some more, then borrowing costs come lower again. So you buy some more. And Lisa, it just feels like this weird cycle where leverage might be going up, but because average borrowing costs are lower, people want to buy. Lisa, what breaks that trend? I mean, that's, just, that's been the story of the last 10 years, if you think about it, right? Rates have been going down for that almost entire period of time and companies have been issuing more debt. Um, I think what breaks, there's a few things that break it. Um, The central banks starting to deliver a different message than the one which they're delivering now, so that they're no longer going to be as supportive as they were. I think inflation coming through um, in a material, material and very sustained way, nothing like what we saw yesterday that was just you know, one data print. I think that you need to see serious inflation for them to change their tune. Um, you know, there's a million other potential variables that could change things, but that's why I think you use valuations as your guide. And as, as credit becomes more expensive, um, you have to be really judicious about which companies you own. Yeah. There are certainly still companies out there that are buying back debt, that are, that are actually taking some of the higher coupon debt out of the market. So leverage, you know, maybe more or less unchanged. They have large cash buffers. 
as well. Um, so I think you just have to be cautious about which companies you're buying and stick to high quality, more defensive names. Lisa, before we let you go, can we say congratulations from my family, the Bloomberg Surveillance family, to yours? Yeah, I understand yeah. there's a new little Hornby in the family. What's his name? <laughs> Alexander, thank you very much. He's a, he's a pl- proud B- B- Bloomberg watcher. He's been watching the screen the last few months. So. Well, he's a lucky little boy to have a great mum. Lisa, fantastic to catch up with you, as always. Our best to your family. Thank Lisa you. Hornby there of Schroeder's. A little bit later this week, there will be a conversation between the United States and China on the phase one agreement. We understand that China would also like to bring in WeChat and TikTok into the chat as well. This is what the Wall Street Journal reported this morning. We reported it a little bit earlier on. Let me repeat it again for you. This from the Wall Street Journal a couple of hours ago. More than a dozen major U.S. multinational companies raised concerns in a call with White House officials just yesterday about the potential broad scope and impact of Mr. Trump's executive order targeting WeChat set to take effect in the next month. On that call, a range of companies, including Apple and the Walt Disney Company. Joining us now, a man who understands this issue better than most, it's Leland Miller of China Beige Book. Leland, great to catch up with you, sir. Let's start there. The tension between these two countries over this specific issue, tech. Where's this heading, Leland? Well, a lot of it depends on on whether or not we see the trade deal last through the election. Uh, That's holding a lot of this back. Uh, But on the tech side specifically, the problem is the White House wants to do something. It wants to take ownership of the issue. It wants to push back on some some very legitimate national security issues related to TikTok and related to WeChat, but it hasn't really fleshed them out. I mean, it's not an accident that we saw a 45 day kick out on any action on uh, TikTok and WeChat particularly when you're talking about WeChat, they just don't know how to pull it back to, to, to restrict parts of it and not dramatically hurt U.S. companies like Apple and others who, who use the, the WeChat e-payment uh, operation for, for huge chunks of their sale. So they haven't really thought this through. They want to be aggressive, but, but, there's, but the jury's still out in which direction they're going to go on this. Which direction they're going to go on this? Does this mean that you expect them to pull it back? Does this just imagine, uh, do you expect that they're going to put provisions within the ban that allow the companies like Apple to sell WeChat on, uh, on their iStore, Apple Store? Was it? iStore, I like that. <laughs> yeah, look, uh, I think, look, TikTok should have a sale. I think that could end this if, if you see a sale within within the coming weeks. I think that's very likely. WeChat's a much more difficult issue. And I think that the chances are that you see a broad-based, aggressive uh, solution is very low. I think there's a chance that this thing gets kicked out past the election. Uh, they're going to have to do something, but there are plenty of remedial actions from CFIUS and others in which they can sort of tweak things at the margins. Uh, the, the more they're getting into this issue, the more they realize that they don't understand the second and third order effects. So they, they want the political oomph from doing a, a big, broad anti-China action, uh, but they're not prepared for the fallout. So I, I think it'll be less than people expect. Headline cross on the Bloomberg, Leland. Let me bring it to you that India is said to be poised to ban Huawei and ZTE from 5G network trials. This is not just about the United States and China, Leland. It's about China and a whole host of countries. How are they handling this right now? And do you think President Xi has pushed things a little bit too far? 
Yeah, I think that they're handling this about as poorly as you could possibly handle this issue. Uh, one of the mistakes people make is, is thinking that Huawei and ZTE are just another Chinese company or two. Uh, they're not. They're, they're, they're a five, uh, you know, Huawei in particular is, is, is the Chinese semiconductor champion uh, in terms of uh, building out 5G. And so you, you have an enormous national security issue where, where countries are now becoming aware of just how dangerous it might be to, to integrate Huawei into all of their new next generation telecommunications. Uh, the U.S. Is, has been pushing on this, but it wasn't until China really antagonized the entire universe uh, during and in, in, in the aftermath of their COVID hit that that, that, uh, that countries are really taking notice on this. So, you know, this is something in which Xi Jinping, I think, has overplayed his cards. Uh, he just, uh, this is just going in the wrong direction for China. It's a real problem because they're not going to be able uh, to pull this back if, uh, if Huawei gets cut off. The narrative over the past few months has been that China China will recover faster than the rest of the world from the pandemic because they clamped down harder and they, are, uh, and they had the virus first. Is what you're saying that that is not necessarily the case because they are facing these other pressures due to some of their international trade policies? Well, they may recover faster and first, but recovery no longer means what people think it used to mean. Uh, so you know, if you're looking at at month-on-month uh, -month improvement, quarter-on-quarter -quarter improvement, we're seeing that in our data. You're seeing that in the PMIs. What you're not seeing is a return to normalcy. You're not seeing on-year growth. Uh, our last data showed no on-year growth whatsoever. Uh, and, and quite frankly, that's not what the PMIs are showing either. People have decided they don't understand how to read the PMIs, which have no uh, bearing on year-on-year -year trends. So I think you are seeing recovery, uh, partly because China was hit with COVID first, and so they're emerging fastest, uh, but you're not seeing a, a real recovery. And then you've got all these geopolitical tensions and trade tensions and technology tensions that are adding on to this. So I would be very hesitant about declaring this a, a, a banner recovery story, even if they're doing better than most. I love the PMI shade. That's such a Bloomberg conversation. Leland, it's okay. I appreciate it. Leland Miller there of the China Beige Book. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. Let's get to Ian Lennon, shall we, of BMO Capital Markets. He joins us right now. Ian, your thoughts on the trajectory of the recovery and what you're seeing in the data right now? Well, when I take a look at the economic data, we see a pause in some of the improvement that we had been seeing, which is troubling. And the reason that it's so troubling is because we're entering this period where the market is not going to trust the economic data, not because of data collection issues, but rather because the recent spike in COVID-19 cases hasn't ultimately flowed through to the labor market. I think that the August non-farm payrolls report is going to be very telling. And to a large extent, the market's going to be in a holding pattern until then, at least in Treasury space. Obviously, we see what's going on with the equity market. They seem to be uh, trading off of it an entirely different set of uh, facts and expectations as we have in rates at the moment. You know, it's important to bring up uh, just the idea that there is this pessimism baked into the rates market, that yields are so low, not just because of a Fed put, but because people have very low expectations for the U.S. economy. There wasn't much of a market response to this better than expected unemployment report, but the 10-year yields did turn up. Price down, yields higher for, I believe, a fifth day. Ian, if we do see a better than expected trend in the data, how high could those yields go? 
Well, I think it's important to keep in context that yesterday we had the August refunding auction of so new 10 years, and we get new 30 years today. So a bit of what's going on right now is an auction, an auction concession, so pricing in new supply. In the event that the data does turn and sentiment broadly improves, there's nothing to keep a move toward the 75 basis point level in TINs uh, from occurring over the course of the next six to eight weeks. We do have constructive seasonals for treasuries between now and the middle of Ian, that's December. a seven basis point call over two months. <laughs> we're basically there already, aren't we? Um, I mean, we're, we're not going to 1% in the next two months. I agree right, with you they, on, on yeah. what you're saying, Kira. I understand what you're trying to say. I don't necessarily agree with the call. But we're slap bang in the middle of the range of the last two or three months. 50 basis yeah. point, the low end of the range. We saw that last week. The top end of the range, 90 basis points from the beginning of June. There's an idea that some people have that somehow the Fed can cap the long end and not just anchor the front end. Ian, what's your thoughts on that? Well, they are in actively buying treasuries, certainly further out the curve as well. So QE in and of itself creates a structural demand. Now, whether they can actually cap 10 and 30-year yields using their monetary policy in the front end, it's an open question, but a an operation twist or overweighting purchases further out the curve would do it. And frankly, at this moment, what's really driving 10- and 30-year yields, even though they are within that definable range, is global growth and inflation expectations. So an uptick in inflation, comparable to what we saw yesterday, that that extends, I think that would be the, the missing ingredient to really reprice the longer and higher. And a lot of people would agree with you, HSBC coming out and saying if the Fed hadn't stepped in, Treasury yields may actually be even lower, not higher than where they are now, because growth would be that much slower, which brings me to the balance sheet. A lot of people, when the Fed was originally ramping up its program in response to the pandemic, were expecting the balance sheet to get to $10 trillion by the end of the year. Right now, it's a little bit around $7 trillion. It's kind of bouncing up and down, depending on the week. It seems to have stabilized. Have you ratcheted back your expectations of how many assets the Fed will have? have to or want to buy before year-end in order to support markets? I think at this point, the Fed has told us the pace that they're going to continue purchasing at, and that does keep a, a, a target um, growing in trillions by 2021 to, on the table. I don't think that what's playing out right now uh, in the real economy is giving the Fed any confidence that they'll need to buy less. And if anything, as the economic data continues to unfold throughout the balance of the year, we'll probably see a risk for an expansion of some of the existing programs rather than a contraction unless there's a decidedly positive turn that I don't think anyone in the market is currently expecting. Ian, at this point, given where we are, given where borrowing costs are, is the Fed's effort doing anything to actually help the economy? Well, what the Fed is doing is they're trying to push investors further out the yield curve, further out the credit curve, and further through the capital structure, which is why we're seeing equities perform the way that, the way that they are at the moment. And ideally, that then provides an incentive for firms to continue to expand and hire back or to expand and hire back some of the people that were laid off. Recall, we lost 25 million jobs. We've only gained back 35% of that. So there's still a lot of work left to go. And the Fed has made it clear that they're okay risking 
bubbles at this point, given that the reality is that they need to reemploy the labor force. Ian, great to catch up. As always, stay in touch, won't you? Ian Lennon there of BMO Capital Markets. Now, joining us to talk about fiscal action is Jason Furman. He's Harvard Kennedy School professor and former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors during the Obama administration. Jason, thank you for joining us. When you look at how far apart Democrats and Republicans actually are, I think it's over $1 trillion. Is it a bit like Europe? They're far apart. There's overtures. They get shot down. But at the, the end of the day, they'll find a deal in the 11th hour. Or is it different? Um, Francine, it is past midnight already. Um, one of these programs expired at the end of June. The other program expired at the end of July. And, you know, the lead negotiator for one of the sides has now gone on vacation. So I am very worried about, you know, when the two sides will come together. I assume at some point they will. Um, but I think it could, you know, is unlikely to happen this month. Jason, does it make a difference? So we understand that one of the biggest sticking points is actually aid to state and local governments. Does it make, a, or how much of a difference does it make if we have something in August or if we have something in September? Is it, is it going to scar the economy? Yeah, I think it makes a big difference. I think we're already doing irreversible, or not irreversible, but persistent harm to the economy. Um, states and localities should have had this aid months and months ago, before they set their budgets for this year. The school year has begun in many states in the United States, and they have enormous expenditures they need to make in order to make schools safe. If they can't make schools safe, they can't have the students, which makes it harder for their parents to work, which has another um, knock-on effect on the economy. We're right now in the largest fiscal contraction the United States has ever seen, as the CARES Act, which was roughly $500 billion a month, has gone down to what I would estimate at about $45 billion, given the president's executive order. That's about how much stimulus um, that is worth. So a huge fiscal contraction, states behind the curve, knock-on effects for parents working. Um, this is not at all good for the U.S. economy. Jason, people on the other side would argue we're seeing a pretty rapid improvement, that we're seeing jobless claims fall uh, from their peaks, that the unemployment rate, while still incredibly high based on historical uh, normalcy, is still a lot lower than it was during the peak of the shutdowns. What would you say to people saying, we're just on the path to recovery, sit tight, wait, don't increase the deficit, because we're getting there? I would say to those people that all of those economic data, and it has been a rapid recovery, it varies. Employment's recovered less than half. Consumer spending has gone almost all the way. Um, but all of that rapid recovery has been in the face of a massive, massive policy response. And if you end that massive policy response, the prop underlying that will be gone. Disposable personal income was up 10%, not even at an annual rate in the second quarter. That's why consumption got all the way back to where it was a year ago. That helped support the job recovery. That didn't happen on its own. That happened because people had massive amounts of cash, and we're now about to take that away.
All right, Jason, there's an argument that if they add to the uh, extra $600 a week or $600 in extra stimulus for people who are unemployed, that that will actually lead to people not going back to the workforce. But there was a study done by the University of Chicago in 538 that suggested that actually a decrease in unemployment benefits would lead to an increase in joblessness. Do you agree? Does that make sense to you? I think the higher the unemployment benefit, the better the economy is in the next couple months because people have more money to spend, and that's the most important direct effect. I think at some point it has a labor disincentive, and so I personally would taper that number down, start reducing it um, from $600 a week. Um, to date, the, it's been completely fine. All the evidence is it's completely fine. I don't think $600 a week is the right number for December, something more like $400 a week would both support consumption but have a better balance with the work incentives that will matter more in the future than they have in the past. Jason, when should we start worrying about deficits? Not, not this year, probably not next year. Interest rates are really low. In fact, they're negative adjusted for inflation. The economy is way below um, where it should be. I just don't think that needs to be a concern for a while, unless, Francine, you're, you're passing something permanent. You know, if you want to do a new health reform that lasts forever, I think you should be paying for that. But if these are temporary measures, um, people want to lend money at a negative interest rate, we should be taking those loans and not worrying about them. And Jason, you know, what you hinted at is as much as the money, the fight between Republicans and the Democrats is actually how about, you know, the economy will fare in the months ahead. If we don't have a stimulus, what's your base case for what the U.S. economy will look like at the end of the year? Without a stimulus, you have a W-shaped recovery because consumption, as I said, is back to where it was pre-crisis, even though the unemployment rate is 10 percent. You would have expected consumption to be down about 10% given the state of the labor market. That's what would happen if there's no new stimulus and a 10% decline in consumption would be a very sharp contraction you know, that might show up in Q3, might show up in Q4, would be compounded by further cutbacks at the state and local level. Francine, really interesting to see. We were expected to be talking about the phase two of the trade deal between the U.S. and China. Right now, we are still talking about phase one, and we are going to be assessing phase one, U.S. and China negotiators meeting on Saturday. Still with us to talk about uh, some of the international implications here, Jason Furman, Harvard Kennedy School professor and former chair of the Council of Economical Advisors under President Obama's era. I'm wondering, Jason, from your perspective, how significant are these phase one trade talks, given the fact that we're supposedly uh, we're supposed to have a deal that China isn't really close to complying with it based on the pandemic and that tensions seem to be rising between the two nations. I agree with everything you said, except the based on the pandemic caveat. I didn't expect China to comply with it. I didn't think it made sense even to negotiate this type of managed trade where they promise um, to buy certain things. The whole U.S. approach to China has failed because it's been entirely unilateral, ignored the WTO, hasn't worked with our allies, has focused on an illegitimate objective, which is these purchasing goals, 
And we need to change all of that because it's really important to put pressure on China to do it in a consistent, effective and multilateral manner. Well, President Trump ratcheting up the pressure on China, in particular, banning U.S. companies from doing business with WeChat of Tencent, uh, as well as TikTok, and trying to understand here why we're not seeing this reflected in markets, given the fact that Apple, among other companies, have said that this could potentially be a big hit to their profitability for a business that accounts for nearly a fifth of their revenues. Yeah, I mean, I think what President Trump is doing, you know, when he talks for getting a share of the revenue on the TikTok deal is just sending exactly the wrong message to the Chinese. We should be sending a message of consistent adherence to law, neutral treatment, um, and the like. So I think it's terrible. He also has a record, though, President Trump, of backtracking when he needs to, especially for the sake of the market. I think one author called it the Trump put, and that's what the market seems to expect will happen here. Or maybe they think Joe Biden will save them with a policy that's going to be very tough on China, but not, I wouldn't expect, as erratic and inconsistent as what we've seen in recent years. Jason, how would you advise a Biden administration in their dealings with China? I would say that the United States does not have enough leverage all by itself. So let's settle the trade wars with Canada, with Mexico, with Germany, with other countries around the world, and let's make common cause, and let's reorient the objectives. It isn't how much American stuff China buys. Germany isn't going to help negotiate a deal for China to buy Boeing jets. Um, it's China's you know, intellectual property rules, neutral treatment under the law, um, and the like. So a renewed U.S. multilateralism can actually be stronger in pushing China, but pushing it in a more principled and rules-based manner. Jason, when you look at the pandemic and, you know, the way it's kind of resetting what maybe some of our priorities are, it could be health, it could be investing in climate change, it could be all sorts of things. Will it actually, will this pandemic end our obsession with economic growth? I don't think it's going to end our obsession with employment. Um, that is a problem now, and I think in all of our economies in Europe, the United States, a year, two years, three years from now, we're going to have very excess um, unemployment, and bringing that down will be a major um, objective that public policy is going to struggle with um, for years to come. And you know, we've also seen you know that giving people cash, whether through unemployment, through checks, through other mechanisms has, to some degree, helped solve um, this problem, at least in the short run for many households. And so I don't think this is going to make you know, cash and money any less important than it was before. Wait, Jason, are you advocating for some sort of MMT, some sort of modern monetary theory here? Uh, modern monetary theory is like a stopped clock that's right twice a day, and now is one of those times. Okay, so you're not saying going forward that this is your, your policy. What do you think about the deglobalization shift in general and, and the possibility that it's going to increase prices and, and, and um, purchasing decrease purchasing power for the average consumer in the U.S.? Is that something you're worried about? I'm a little bit worried about it. I mean, there's two types of deglobalization. One is an artificial one because we're incapable of getting along as countries. I think that's a big problem. 
Um, the other is a natural one that, you know, turns out the cost of globalization just to your balance sheet, your bottom line, is a bit higher than you thought because of these unexpected events happening a little bit more often um, around the world. And so I think there's some natural retrenchment. But I also do think that the, the economic benefits of globalization are so enormous that you know, in any scenario, companies, consumers are going to find a way to have a lot of it. Jason, if we don't have a stimulus in the U.S., will the Democrats be blamed for it? Uh, the Republicans will blame the Democrats. The Democrats will blame the Republicans. I think ultimately um, the president, fairly or unfairly, in this case I would say fairly, um, bears the blame when there's dysfunction and failure. All right, Jason, thank you, as always, for joining us. Jason Furman, their Harvard Kennedy School professor and former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. <laughs>